0: This episode is brought to you by Just Egg. It's a butter egg made from plants. Bring more customers in your doors with Just Egg. Start with a free sample at ju.st/hrn. This week on Meet and Three, we're talking about the United States' biggest crop. It's corn.
1: They will always tell you that corn is like their family. Corn is their family. You treat corn like you would treat your family. These subsidy programs are supposed to be for really
0: dealing with unexpected
1: things that happen to farmers. Although in practice, a lot of times farmers are actually paid farm subsidies for things that we can control and do expect.
2: There's this constant warfare going on between the oil industry and the grain industry.
0: Tune in to Meet and Three, available wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello and welcome to Why Food, a podcast about entrepreneurs, innovators, and career changers. I'm your lone co-host, Ethan Frisch. Valerie is uh, uh, back next week, but I'm really excited to introduce you to, to our guest this week. Uh, Sue Betty is the founder and head coach of Bluebird Hospitality in Burlington, Vermont. Sue, thanks for joining me. Hi Ethan, thanks for thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Uh, likewise, it it you know, despite being virtual for at least a year at this point, it's still pretty rare that we talk to people outside of New York. And uh, I'm I'm really interested in hearing your perspective, especially uh, around your work with the uh, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which we'll we'll get to a little later. But um, why don't we start with a, a little background? How did you how did you get into food?
1: I, start, I first started working in restaurants, I think in high school, um, in the Adirondacks at kind of like a resort town. And I was at a marina, restaurant, nightclub operation for about five years. And I did a little bit of everything over that time. And then I continued working in restaurants pretty much throughout my career, uh, on and off.
2: And you also have a, an education uh, background, right? It's some, some training and education?
1: Yeah, after uh, I graduated St. Michael's College in Vermont, I um, my first official career job was as the head coach at Siena College's women's lacrosse. And from there, I spent about five years in higher education and finished up a master's degree in higher education at the University of Vermont.
2: And how did how did you decide to come back to food? Was that something that you had always wanted to do, or or did that kind of occur to you later?
1: Does destiny count? Yeah, sure. Um, I, I just never, never seem to be able to kind of get away. Um, I really learned a lot and grew a lot during my time in higher ed. At the same time, I really felt like kind of a draw to maybe more of an entrepreneurial life versus like a higher ed kind of leans a little bit more bureaucratic. And I kind of realized that as I was going to progress in college athletics, that I'd be moving a lot from from college to college to progress my career, and I really felt like I wanted to set roots somewhere and and build something.
2: That uh, that that entrepreneurial start is so hard for so many people, especially people who have come from uh, you know, sort of like you did a world or an industry where things are bureaucratic and and tend to be very process driven. Uh, what was that like? Uh, starting your own your own restaurant, your own company for the first time. What were what were some of those initial challenges and successes?
1: That's a really good question. Because <laughs> um, in, in moments it was exciting, and you know opportunity was there, and there was a thrill, and I could just I think I just entered in with this like earnestness, maybe a little bit of naivete, and then there was moments of. <sighs> Wow, this is stressful. And wow, this is complicated. And, you know, it was in 2009 and social media was just kind of coming online and social reviews were just coming online. And I was 29 years old and I just found myself kind of in this very public business with a public presence. And as someone that kind of leans introver- introverted, um, it was a roller coaster.
2: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. What, what was the first, you've, you've opened a series of restaurants and maybe it's worth talking a little bit about uh, your your current, or I should say primary restaurant at the moment, but um, the first restaurant you opened was a very different concept. Would you tell us a little bit about it and and how you've kind of expanded the type of food that you that you make and, and the concept of the restaurants that you run?
1: Yeah, so I guess backing up right, right after I finished up my higher ed degree and I decided to transition back into the food world full-time, I went out to Berkeley, California for about three years, and I studied natural foods cooking and and ancestral diets and worked in some really cool places and just immersed myself in the Berkeley food scene, which was just an amazing education. And, you know, working with natural foods and kind of holistic healing cooking was very interesting to me. But I also in my classwork, I looked around and I just found like a lot of my classmates were were there because they were healing from um, some significant health problem that was that was holding them back. And I found that like the hyper focus on like what you ate and like the vigilance and some of like the energy behind that. I was like, I don't really know if anyone's feeling any better. (laughs) Um, So I started to kind of visualize the first restaurant that we opened, Bluebird Tavern, is being like just Whole Foods focused, from scratch focused, but not necessarily like a, like a love your liver burger type of restaurant. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. I just I, I wanted to kind of get back to food roots and investigate that and create a, a restaurant that would kind of celebrate the food roots of New England and Whole Foods cooking and just kind of real food. And that was the, the start of Bluebird Tavern.
2: It, it seems like Vermont and maybe Burlington in particular has such a strong uh, tradition of local food and, and puts so much value on, on traceability and sourcing uh, way more, I think, than, than other food scenes I've seen elsewhere in, in the country. Why do you think that is and, and how has that kind of affected the growth of your businesses and the way that you've, you've positioned them?
1: Sometimes I feel like I should be like a commercial for Vermont because I'm such a fan. <laughs> but it's an incredible place to live and it's an incredible place to live and work in food. We just, I mean, our population is 600,000 total for the state. You know, it kind of boggles my mind the innovation and the talent that we have in our food world, you know, from restaurants to farmers to brewers to producers. It's, just seems to be this place where there's been some sort of magnet where everyone's congregated to create like a really innovative and, and forward-thinking food scene that I think really leads the way in the, in the U.S. for sure in a lot of ways.
2: Where do you think that comes from? Why, why is it so strong there?
1: I've thought about that a lot. I grew up in upstate New York, which is like a, across the lake in Lake Champlain. And, you know, that that area is beautiful in its own way. And I've just been like, is there something in like the rock foundation of Vermont that kind of creates this energy? Um, I don't know. I, I think there's something that we're able to do in Vermont, which is still be able to be very focused on community. Uh, we're still very tied to the land in many ways. And I think that a lot of people who've grown up here or who choose to relocate here really are kind of seeking, like, a really cool way of life.
2: Yeah, it's uh, – I mean, I, I haven't spent a ton of time there, but my brother went to UVM. And so, I, you know, I got to visit Burlington several times. And just my trips through the state, uh, the, the food options available, even in, even in kind of unremarkable supermarkets, are, are really incredible. The, the local sourcing programs that, that they have in place – um, was that – do you think it was easier to do for your restaurants because that infrastructure existed? Did you have to uh, kind of track down new suppliers or set up new systems, or or were you able to just sort of plug into what was already there?
1: We were able to plug in. Vermont had a, a – and still does have a, a great organization called the Vermont Fresh Network, which uh, sole focus originally was to link uh, farmers with outlets and restaurants and grocery and I think they set up the infrastructure that was, I believe, in the late '90s. Um, so we were able to to latch to that.
2: And and let's talk a little bit about uh, about Bluebird Barbecue, which is which is your your current restaurant uh, and kind of an iconic place. Uh, you've been featured on uh, uh, Guy Fieri's uh, Diners, Drive-ins, and Dives, and uh, you've gotten a lot of national press. Tell, like <laughs> how do you explain the popularity, or uh, what what are you doing there that's that's so special?
1: I think barbecue is special. Um, I'm like, honestly, not like a hardcore carnivore. (laughs) Um, I'm like an appreciator of food in like a lot of different ways. But what I appreciate most about barbecue is like, it is able to reach the sense of nostalgia in so many people. And it is this like comfort food, but at the same time, there's an art to it. And, I just find that so compelling as a concept. Um, and it's a food to share and a food to be together. And I just, you know, at, at Bluebird Barbecue, we have, you know, prior to COVID, when we were in full operation, it would be like sauces around on the table and people are passing sauces and people were getting seated and seeing their neighbors. And it just had a really great feel. And um, we've just been really blessed to have an incredible team there. Uh, that that's really kind of created this, I think, brand that's like lighthearted and fun and friendly and, and makes people feel good, um, and that's like, for me, just just feels right. And uh, you know, it's it's like kind of magical.
2: What's uh, what makes the food distinctive? What what do people come back for in terms of the the barbecue itself?
1: Yeah, it's interesting because a lot of times like restaurants are about curiosity and you know you, you you step in and then you look at the menu and you kind of wonder what you're going to get or and like barbecue is at least in our experience has like kind of the opposite like i'm having you know this type of day and i need to go treat myself and i want the brisket at bluebird like before folks walk in the door if if they're returning guests they usually know what they want um So there's something about like the comfort of consistency and, uh, that really, I think connects with people, you know, and then for us, like the challenge is creating that consistency day in and day
2: out. And how, how do you do that? I guess what I'm, what I'm looking for is a little more detail on, on how you're, how you're doing the barbecue. What style is it? How is it being, is it being smoked? Is it being grilled? What's the, talk to me about the food a little bit.
1: Yeah, sure. So (laughs) When you know, we're we're in Vermont, um, you know, and I do think that every culture, every region does have uh, you know, cooking over fire, smoking in their traditions. But um for sure in the US the South is, you know, owned barbecue and a lot and it's like a way of life down there. For us it was not so getting um detail oriented into like regional barbecue cooking, but really looking at each ingredient, and um, celebrating those ingredients, and 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 like creating uh, recipes and smoke schedules that um, brought the best out in those ingredients. So we have a smokehouse outside the restaurant with a giant smoker uh, that's uh, wooden gas fired um, that that's running pretty much twenty four seven.
2: Are you are you uh, are you the one? Uh, turning the spits or, uh, you know, doing that, that 18 hour cooking process who, who, uh, no, who supervises no. the, the smoking?
1: We have a, we have a, a, a amazing chef, uh, Dan Miele and an uh, awesome culinary team. And they've really been running the show for years now. Um, you know, I, I've, uh, spent some time around barbecue and particularly when we, uh, have our food truck out and at, at the festivals, but I'm not hands-on in the kitchen day in and day out. I'm definitely more, um, focused on, on the company and Bluebird and the team and, and those, those parts of the work.
2: Yeah. And, and I did want to ask about that too, because you, you do have such a depth of experience and, and have owned several restaurants and and I think have a, uh, kind of a, a unique approach to running a restaurant and managing the team. Could you talk us through that philosophy or, or your, your value system in, in running the business?
1: You know, what I've learned, I'm 10 years in to running the business and what I've learned, what's most important is like, I have to keep growing and I have to keep learning and I have to keep reflecting and, you know, improve myself as a person. And as I've uh, gained experience and more learning and, and learned how to work with folks and, you know, learned how to guide the business and learn how to be like a, you know, a leader, which is, I think, a lifelong learning lesson. Um, that's my first look is I, I've got to I've got to set those standards for myself and, and try to keep working it. And, you know, looking back to my early part of my career, I can definitely see moments and many, you know, where I'm like, oh, boy, you know. Um, so that's my first look is is really learning for myself and improving myself. And then, you know, my hope my my ongoing hope is to create a work environment at Bluebird where people want to st- step through the door every day. And it's a, 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 you know, safe space to work. It's a positive place to work. It's a place where people make friends and feel belonging. Like that is my like number one goal. Um, you know, and then mapping that to running a successful business and and creating a guest experience that, people want to come back for.
2: And, and you had also introduced yourself as, as the head coach, uh, and especially given your, your sports coaching experience, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit more about the, the coaching aspects of, of your job as well.
1: Yeah. It's so funny. I, you know, you know, you know, turning back to 2009 and just coming out of uh, a lot of coaching experience and, and coaching is like a really, interesting first job because you you're really looking at building teams and then individuals you're looking to advance and help them improve and and shine and I think my early part of my career at Bluebird I may have like disconnected from that a little bit because I felt like I had to be serious and run things like a business and you know I think we all worked in restaurants and that's the model you know um so you kind of returned to that. And it and it took me about five years to realize that I was like leaving a lot of myself out of that. And that I was leaving a lot of like what I had learned in higher ed out of it. And so I think the second half of the last 10 years, I've been trying to bring more of that forward. And um, you know, I, I did rebrand myself as head coach because I, I had a, you know, a couple of like overhearing people call me the boss and I just kind of (laughs) cringed so I was like I gotta I gotta work on this brand because I don't feel like I don't really feel connected to being a boss I really feel connected to you know being a coaching leader that that helps you know co-create a vision with the team and then optimally like helps every team member like find new open doors for themselves
2: yeah, it's it's an interesting challenge, right? I mean, for for my company, which obviously has a much smaller staff than yours does being a, you know, primarily an e-commerce business, we we've hired uh, basically everybody over the last year, um, and I'm also I'm sort of thinking through that process myself. Like, what does it mean to be a, a boss when I don't really know that much more in many cases than the people I'm I'm supposed to be supervising, or um, or are the employees of my company? Uh, and in, in many cases, they know a lot more, which is why we've hired them. Um, I don't know. Do you have any any pieces of advice for me or for for other fairly early stage entrepreneurs who are trying to navigate that? complicated professional and, and social situation?
1: I think be really kind to yourself when you make mistakes. You know, I, I think that that's like inevitable. Um, and you know, it's always a bummer when you've kind of reflect and you're like, I really should have handled that differently. And it it impacted someone. I mean, that's like, that's kind of like the, the challenge of like having, you know, power and decisions, so what I've had to learn for myself is to be a little bit more kind to myself when I've made the mistakes and then try to reroute myself. So like moving forward, there's systems in place to to help us have like, more guardrails and decisions and more guardrails and how we handle like a team member conflict. Or, like, so we've really been focusing on getting getting systems down on paper and, and kind of growing from like being a restaurant to being like a company.
2: Yeah, and how does the how does the sort of customer facing aspect of of your work and your team's work interact with that aspect of it? Because that's you know we've been thinking about that. Also, many several of, of the people who work for for us at Bar-Lap Barrel are uh, customer support, primarily customer support people who are responding to customer emails and you know we do what we can to keep people happy but at some point there's only so much uh, so much you can do and i've kind of been thinking about the process of management similar to the to the way that we handle uh customer issues or complaints or or requests in in general we we want to keep people happy we want to make things run as smoothly as possible but at some point there there are things that you can and things that you can't do um are there do you find that there's there's overlap between a customer service philosophy and an internal kind of uh, an internal system or or do they exist totally separately maybe i'm i'm going in the wrong direction with this
1: no you know i think like they're completely connected because it's really important that you know from like the the leadership lens that there's a lot of listening that happens and i think if we generate the space for our team members to bring issues up to us and listen and give space to that we model it there when it happens on the floor with a guest it's kind of drawn out of that that initial like support system
2: let's take a quick break we'll be back in two minutes stay with us
0: this episode is brought to you by just egg you can't have plant-based breakfast without a plant-based egg Just Egg is now the fastest growing egg brand in the United States. Bring more plant-based customers into your doors with easy-to-use Just Egg. You can get started with a free sample. Just head to ju.st hrn. Made from plants, Just Egg is a better egg for you and for the planet. It's healthier, with no cholesterol and less saturated fat. And it's more sustainable. Just Egg uses less water and generates fewer carbon emissions. Most importantly, it's delicious. For our listeners who operate a food service establishment, you can get a sample for free. Head to ju.st/.hrn. Just Egg makes a delicious plant-based addition to any menu. It's available as a liquid scramble, great for omelets, frittatas, stir fries, and French toast. There's also frozen pre-baked folded version that's ideal for filling breakfast sandwiches or topping salads. Chef Jose Andres called Just Egg mind-blowing and Bon Appétit says, "So good, I feel guilty eating it." Put the fastest-growing egg brand on your menu. Get a free sample of Just Egg for your restaurant at ju.st/hrn.
2: And we're back. My guest this week is Sue Betty, head coach and founder of Bluebird Hospitality in Vermont. Uh, Sue, I, I also wanted to, to talk a little bit about your work with the Independent Restaurant Coalition, which has uh, gotten quite a bit of press over the last year uh, and and has presented some some solutions, potentially controversial in some cases, to to the crisis in the restaurant industry. Uh, could you give, could you give us a little background on on the work that needs to be done and and how the the independent restaurant coalition is responding.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I was connected. Uh, well, you know, as soon as as the pandemic became kind of like the reality, the pandemic for our industry kind of came to everyone's awareness, which is late March uh, last year. Um, it was, you know, almost this existential crisis for independent restaurants, um, and. I became involved with the Independent Restaurant Coalition through like a network of friends, and they had already gained some momentum with the initial founding group. And uh, over time, it's grown to about uh, I think uh, eighty to one hundred folks on our, our leadership circle from across the United States. Um, with the you know the one 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 single purpose was to you know preserve our restaurant industry um, through the crisis. Um, you know, it was uh, it's been an incredible journey and, and an amazing group of, of restaurateurs that have come together in this um, really collaborative and supportive and powerful way. And uh, there was a real focus on telling our story. Um, so folks in the government and, and, and policy really change to support independent restaurants specifically and that work like for me was incredibly interesting and incredibly inspiring and I think like there was a lot of calls and a lot of outreach and a lot of advocacy lobbying like all of that it was it was really intense for a period, but at the same time, I just feel so blessed to be part of a group during that period that we could actually like do something and take action and tell our story. So it was like personally powerful in a, for me in a way that like, I don't even know if I'll understand, you know, until for, for a couple more years.
2: What, uh, what did, what did you see in terms of impact or, or movement, some of the, the effects of, of that advocacy that you were involved in?
1: this was like an unprecedented situation for everyone. (laughs) The, you know, the intricacies of the pandemic and how it was impacting certain sectors and, uh, you know, where the government was at last year was a little bit, um, well, I think we all know just uh, it's a strange combination of energies. Um, So for me, I, I think that what was really important was getting small independent restaurants the chance to tell their story and how their businesses are really disrupted. And there's no, like you have no cards to play at the table. Um, and you know, meanwhile, fixed costs, rent, all of those things were kind of adding up and it was paralyzing for a period and early relief that came out of, uh, with the PPP program really wasn't exactly what the industry needed and because of like the status of our industry. So we did a lot of work to try to make changes to that and to continually promote like this sector of the economy is so critical and we need to keep the sector intact. So we need a specific program designed to save restaurants, which we, we you know, after a year, we just recently saw pass with the restaurant revitalization fund.
2: It, I mean, it, it does seem to me like the needs of restaurants would be very different based on context, based on where they are and how big, you know, the uh, a three Michelin starred restaurant in, I don't know, Las Vegas or something might might have a different set of priorities than you would. Was that was that an issue? How did how did you and, and the other restaurateurs involved navigate that?
1: The, the focus of the Independent Restaurant Coalition was always on the, the independence. And I would say we have, uh, you know, actually some of the most um, celebrated folks in the industry kind of leading the way. And they always were pointing back to, you know, not always about like this is like what's going to work for my restaurant group. But the thought process was always about like the neighborhood of restaurants, the corner delis, like all the folks that are, you know, just kind of living what we think the American dream is and, and, you know, owner operators working day in and day out and just making sure that they survived. Like, I think that was the driving force and the energy behind the IRC and it was inspiring. I, you know, I saw some folks rally behind decisions that that would actually cut their restaurant group out of being a beneficiary, but just making those calls because they believe so much in, 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 in like the small shops of our industry.
2: Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. There, there were some of those high-profile stories early on of of chains. I won't name any names, but chains who had gotten uh, PPP loans or or relief in one way or another, and then uh, wound up giving them back, partially because of public pressure. That that at least was my perception, looking in from the outside. Um, was was that something that was was a priority for you and and the IRC or? Uh, was that, was that really internal? Was that, were those decisions that were being made by those, those different restaurant groups?
1: I, you know, I I can't speak for the IRC on this, but just my perspective was like that initial like closed down period where everyone was scrambling. I I actually think the chains were scrambling too. Um, And so I don't, I don't have a lot of criticism for anyone that could meet the, whatever PPP rules were taking it. Like that was what the, what was put in front of folks. So I think that um, what the challenge was, was like who was able to access the PPP early. And there was some some issues if you didn't have a banking relationship or access to those relationships, you were boxed out, um, which seemed to be corrected over time as there was revision after revision.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was definitely a, a moment of crisis and everybody was trying to do whatever they could. Uh, but uh, you know, I think one of the concerns across the industry, I mean, even for me personally living in New York City, which had, we've seen this shift over the last, you know, many years anyway, the the closing of longstanding neighborhood businesses, family owned or independently owned, um, you know, and and this huge growth of chains, old chains, new chains, you know, just sure. filling in all of those spaces and making it harder for the independents to to stand out and, and compete. Do you, do you think – is there a silver lining – through covid that 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 trend might might change directions that we might we might uh, make it easier for for independent (laughs) restaurants to open and and operate
1: you know what i've learned this past year just you know so this is my experience like working with uh we have just 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 to kind of level set we have an amazing delegation in vermont we have um senator sanders senator Leahy, congressman welch just a really connected, you know, group of folks that really care about Vermont and Vermonters, and so I have like just respect and admiration for their work and the way they reached out to us. I think, at the same time, just kind of glimpsing in how the game is played <laughs> um, within government and lobbying, and and for us to be under government mandate that we couldn't operate the business in a way that you know allowed us to be a business and to have to lobby so hard um to let people know that we were in crisis and that you know our our industry was failing and to kind of have that not move more quickly forward to have the fund that was needed to save our industry take a year it just it gave me like I had to think a lot about like what the role, what the what the relationship is between like government and particularly like small business. And I feel like there's um, some tensions between business and policy and business. And I'm just, my hope is that where we can get out of the pandemic is like becoming like more aligned and an alliance so we can build economies that thrive in the small business world and we can empower small business owners to be better employers and to support our communities. And I think, you know, there may be an opportunity like for sure here in Vermont we're we're working for that. But, um, you know, what I just kind of saw last year was just a lot of like pushing against and trying to be louder. And, and, and it was, it was just interesting and disappointing and frustrating. And then, um, just kind of realizing, like, oh, this is how this works.
2: Yeah, and and you've also been involved in some advocacy work, specifically in Vermont. Would you tell us a little bit about that and and how it's going and and where it's going?
1: Yeah, I'll go back to my Vermont <laughs> commercial. It's a, it's definitely you know, if I had to pick a state, just because being on the you know Independent Restaurant Coalition and, and hearing stories about how each state since each state was handling things differently, you could really see. How each state's policies were impacting different different restaurants, you know. For us, we we had a, a small group of restaurateurs, and I put together a coalition early, right right around March seventeenth, um, to help just because just kind of seeing what was going to happen. We just knew we had a had we needed a collective effort to support our industry. And the the cool thing about living in Vermont is like you can pick up the phone and, and definitely talk to people that make decisions it wasn't you know very difficult to get to the governor's office and let them know like this is what's happening and there was back and forth the whole time and it was much more collaborative and I think we we, we generated a, a really positive outcome with a robust state grant program that I think kept pretty much our whole Vermont restaurant industry intact. And I really have to credit like the work of the coalition and our legislatures and the governor's team for, for really coming together to put together a program that, that mattered.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's great and great to hear that, that at least uh, somewhere it's, it's being done right. Um, And on, on that same note, what do you think of the, of the national program of the bill that was just passed?
1: Well, that, you know, that was really shaped by the IRC early on. And uh, it's designed to support restaurants. So there were early PPP had a lot of restrictions on use of funds and how it was allocated. Like this program should really work to support restaurants. Uh, The biggest challenge that that we see coming up is that, you know, it's potentially uh, not funded to the level of need. um, But we've, we've heard word that if there is a a funding issue that the, there'll be some future monies reallocated. Um, so I'm I'm holding the highest optimism that the grant, the federal grant will come in at the right time when operators really need it to, to keep their businesses intact and it'll help uh, carry teams forward.
2: Do you have any advice or, or resources you might recommend for a, a restaurant owner or operator who, who is looking to understand this a little bit better and understand how, how they might um, get access to some of that support
1: yeah it's uh, it, the irc's website is save restaurants.com and they have a great resource section and a way to connect and get in touch and get on their email n- newsletter list so I, w- I would start there
2: all right uh let's do a little uh, rapid fire before we wrap up are you ready for some uh, some tricky questions okay all right um if you were a vegetable what vegetable would you be
0: what came to
1: mind, uh, immediately was a uh, carrot. Okay. Um, and I don't know why that is, but like, uh, orange, bright, uh, nurturing.
2: Yeah. sounds delicious. And you can eat the, eat the leaves too. If, uh, I don't know if that, if that makes a carrot. <laughs> <laughs> um, how about, uh, how about your desert Island kitchen tool? What do you, what do you find yourself reaching for more than anything else when you're cooking?
1: I I was just staring at my microplane and I was like, we've been together a long time and I, we might have to re-up, but you know, we've, at the same time, I, I feel like I've got like a kitchen friend there.
2: Yeah. That's a good one. You're, you're, it, it doesn't get, uh, people don't say microplane as often as you might think. Uh, but, but it's come up a few times and I think it's, it's one of those really, um, unsung, uh, kitchen workhorses. I think people don't realize how versatile it can be. And, and how many ways you can use it. Is there a, is there a, a, like a, I don't know, kind of a wacky thing that you use your microplane for that you think other people might not?
1: I, you know, I just think like a little lemon zest on I'm, I'm just about everything always is the, the way to go.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a good move. Um, how about your favorite dish on the menu at Bluebird barbecue?
1: Oh, that's a good question. We have a, a barbecue ramen that we're going to be moving to a, a seasonal option soon, but uh, so we're, we're going to be saying farewell to that in the near future. But it's definitely, I think, this like amazing dish. It's got all the smoky, kind of cool elements from our barbecue in this amazing broth. And it's just really, like, just feels good the whole way through.
2: That sounds amazing. Um, was there a sort of an iconic dish or... Or restaurant experience that you ate when you lived in Berkeley that that kind of woke you up to the the new direction for for food that hadn't spread really to the rest of the country yet but but had built such a home for itself in Berkeley
1: I could just go on and on. Uh, I think you know you have to give a, a nod to Chaponese. Um, just walking, I, I lived three blocks up and just walking by the front of the restaurant and the aesthetic and the vision and, and all the work they've done over the years. It just like almost like comes off the place. Um, and then I think I, you know, my, my time in Berkeley, I was exposed to like blue bottle coffee when it was, a, a like a, like a, like a farm, farm, uh, farm stand, uh, vendor and, uh, just getting like into the world of coffee and how amazing it was, but really everything in Berkeley, I just remember just being like, so focused on these amazing ingredients and these amazing stories. And that's stuck with me through my whole career.
2: Yeah. Wow. Well, I mean, what a, what a special time to sort of be introduced to, to the food world or the professional food world. I should say it's, uh, it's, it's almost legendary at this point. Right.
1: Yeah. I, I still like think back on like all these little moments and I'm always like, wow. And even then, being there, I knew it was cool. You know. Yeah.
2: Um, okay. I have to ask. I don't. Maybe you, you could tell me that you don't want to answer this. But how often does Bernie Sanders come in for barbecue?
1: I, I, I haven't seen Bernie too much at barbecue. I, I do see him. I do see him around town. So maybe maybe when he returns from DC after this uh, interview airs, we'll we'll be able to do a <laughs> welcome in. But uh, we're we're still we're still operating it to go only just because of the COVID impact. So hopefully this summer we'll have everyone that's been involved in saving restaurants stopping by for some barbecue. Do we
2: do we know what Bernie likes to eat?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's a good question. This is going to give me you know something to do <laughs> this
2: summer. <laughs> figure out figure what he likes out. and put it on the menu. <laughs> sounds like fun. Um, Sue, where can our listeners uh, learn more about you and your work uh, order at your restaurants if they if they're local to Burling, Burlington or passing through Vermont and and uh, follow the international the uh, I'm sorry the, the restaurant coalition. Yeah,
1: I mean when, when it's when it's uh, safe to travel again, we, everyone please come to Vermont. Uh, we're up in Burlington. Uh website is bluebirdbarbecue.com and I'm on uh, Instagram at, at sue.betty. And I take a lot of pictures of sunrises. So if you like sunrises, come follow me there.
2: Sounds great. Um, as always, you can reach us by email, why food at Heritage Radio Network.org, and on social at YFood Podcast. You can follow me via my spice company, Burlap and Barrel, at Burlap and Barrel on Instagram. And you can follow Valerie on Instagram at Foodie in New York. Thanks to the Red Crickets for our theme song, Blind. And thanks to Armin Spengen, our, as always, amazing sound engineer. And most of all, Sue, thank you for joining me. This was such an interesting conversation and, and really gave some context for the. The work that the IRC has been doing and, and, and how it's all going.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you,
2: Ethan. Talk to you all next week.
1: Why Food is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org.